All right. Welcome, everyone, to He's Done It, a mostly sports podcast. I'm Corey Novotny, and I'm not joined by anyone today. NBA All-Star Weekend is fixed, right? Well, not exactly. I'll talk about the new scoring format used in the game and give my thoughts on how to improve another event from this weekend. I'll also dive into some of the biggest storylines to watch in the second half as teams get set to make the final pushes for playoff seeding. And in honor of the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice, I will count down the greatest calls in sports history in today's Top 5. Alright, welcome everyone to He's Done It. I am recording this episode by myself. So this is something that uh, Ben has actually been uh, trying to convince me to do. Just uh, get behind the mic, record an episode on my own. Now I think part of his reasoning for that is he doesn't want to feel super dependent on that he always has to be part of these episodes, when of course he does have his other podcast, Affable Chat, that takes up a lot of his time. Um, but he also has said that I have a lot of really great, strong takes, and he doesn't want uh, to feel like I'm being weighed down when it comes to giving them. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think having Brian and Ben on has usually been great. Uh, I've I've always enjoyed being able to you know spend time even if it's remotely uh, with them talking about sports but I figured I would give this a shot see how it goes um, I'd love for you guys to you know come back and give your thoughts on how you know how it went uh, whether this is something you you would like to hear more in the future my hope is that you agree with at least some of what I say but it's also beneficial when you disagree, and that leads to conversation and uh, wanting to hear more. So this is also the 49th episode of He's Done It. It feels a little fitting that uh, you know I'm, I'm honoring Ben and his idea in this way in the 49th episode. Uh, so let's get into it. NBA All-Star Weekend. So the NBA introduced a new scoring system for the All-Star Game. Now, a lot of people find it confusing, uh, which I didn't really understand how it was hard to understand. So basically, the first three quarters are scored individually for charity. So both Team LeBron and Team Giannis had a charity that was devoted to them, uh, a charity involving uh, young students in Chicago, where the game, the, the whole weekend's event was held. And... At the end of the first quarter, Team LeBron was defeating Team Giannis, so Team LeBron's charity won $100,000. The score reset to zero, and at the end of the second quarter, Team Giannis had outscored Team LeBron in that quarter alone, so Team Giannis won $100,000 for their charity. Now, at this point, the NBA was also totaling the scoring for the game, so 
even though it was 51 to 30 team Giannis in that second quarter because they'd been outscored in the first their halftime lead was only 72 to 63 but after halftime the third quarter started out once again scoreless and the two teams played to a 37 37 tie so that hundred thousand dollars from the third quarter rolled over into the fourth quarter where all of the scores were totaled and a target score was chosen based on the higher team's score entering the quarter. So Team Giannis had 133 points, and the NBA chose to do a target score of plus 24 in honor of Kobe Bryant, making the first team to 157. Even though Team LeBron entered down nine, uh, 157 was needed to win the game, and LeBron's team ultimately came back, outscored Team Giannis enough to win a thrilling uh, game. And I, I really think overall, the game itself, all the things on Sunday night were really well done. The introduction with uh, Jennifer Hudson giving her her Kobe Bryant dedication, that, that was beautiful. You had common uh, coming out doing his like slam poetry style introduction to chicago and all of the uh the rich basketball history both of course from the bulls michael jordan but also some other players Dwayne wade was given a shout out of course kobe bryant was involved in this and then when he introduces the players he did his his rhymes uh to introduce each member of the team uh, I thought it was it was there were some interesting ones. Uh, I think the the funny one that really stood out to me was how he managed to rhyme the word clinic with Kawhi Leonard, um, and that that was one thing when when he he started to go into you know this guy puts on a clinic. I was like, did Kelly Olynyk make the All Star game? Uh, but of course, you know, Common was able to pronounce Linnid in a way that it rhymed. Uh, really remarkable effort on his part. Uh, but from there, the, the game got underway, and it started out for the first few quarters, your typical NBA All-Star game. Not a lot of defense. Rudy Gobert, mix it up a little bit. I know a lot of fans uh, were not a huge fan of him making it, which just, I, I don't understand why you can't have defense in the All-Star game. To me, it that's the biggest issue with the All-Star game in the past, is that it's just dunks and pulling up from three, just trying to do the most impressive, craziest thing. Uh, and I get that it's exciting in some ways, seeing these uh, lobs across court, uh, having guys just pull up, start knocking down deep jump shots, but... It's only so much entertainment. 48 minutes of that is a lot. And you, every time I find myself watching the game, it's just, I, I lose interest. It's not something, you know, all of a sudden I, I turn away, look up at the scoreboard, and there's been another 20 points in like five minutes. And it's just, it's never been something that has really been enjoyable to watch. Now, the NBA All-Star game is something that does hold a, a bit of a, a big meaning to me um, growing up. In New Hampshire, uh, we always had President's Day off school, and the All-Star weekend was always over President's Day weekend. And my uncle always had that Monday off, and uh, I would always go up to his house on that Sunday night for the game. We'd hang out, watch the game. It'd always be this this big thing, and then the next day we would go snowshoeing together. So I, I always have those like fond memories of the game. But now that I no longer live in New Hampshire, that's not something that um, I, I've regularly been doing, even though I, I still have Monday off of work. Uh, it, 
it's just kind of taken away from the game itself. And all of a sudden, uh, some of the joy that was part of it as a little kid is gone. And now it's like, yeah, this game's just not all that entertaining. So I loved the new format in the fourth quarter. Having the two teams with the target score. Now, it, it was always kind of, okay, how will this actually play out? Because if it played out like a normal quarter, 24 points, it would be over in five, six minutes, if that. Teams regularly score 40-something points in the quarter, and if it was just the same thing, just throwing up lobs, you know, doing their, their crazy dunks, pulling up threes, not playing defense, it would be over before you knew it. But for whatever reason, the players still tried in the fourth quarter, and they had that competition. This whole idea of it's uh, like going back to the, the blacktop schoolyard roots, it, it really felt that way. And you had Kyle Lowry taking multiple charges in the quarter. Uh, you had guys on both sides actually playing defense. Uh, and I, I think that that made for an entertaining finish to just your typical NBA All-Star game. And I really hope that the NBA continues to do this format, whether it's add 24 to the score every year in honor of Kobe Bryant, who NBA the NBA All-Star Game MVP is now named after, so he will continue to be honored in every game moving forward year after year. Uh, but I, I, I really think that given what we saw, other guys are going to continue to do this. And I know that the the whole thought is, yeah, this is what Kobe would have wanted, all this competition. Is that anything that's going to go away next year? I don't think so. I think if you see these guys in it again, they're going to want to go at it again, especially if you find yourselves with another almost East versus West. These guys are on opposing teams once again. I, I think it it would be uh, great. Now, the the big issue I had was the specific ending and Anthony Davis making a free throw to end the game. Even though he missed the first one, added a little more drama, it, it wasn't a satisfying finish. It would have been more satisfying if, say, you know, James Harden, instead of being called for an offensive foul on a push-off on Kyle Lowry, the three-pointer he made ended it. And even though I was rooting for Team Giannis, it would have been like, okay, that's a more appropriate way for the game to end. So I think you know, if you've played pickup basketball in that format, you probably have never shot free throws you know just playing in with your friends in the you know in the in the schoolyard playing even in in a gym um you know growing up that was certainly never something we did so i think just the same format of bring the ball back up top recheck it do whatever you have to do if you want to do an inbound whatever uh, i think that uh, making teams actually score would be a huge improvement and one thing, the way that I always liked to play was you had to win it on a jumper. You couldn't win it on a layup, on an inside shot. Um, that might have just been you know, one rule that was imposed, and I guess from my preference, because I'm a smaller guy, shooting was always uh, my, my best and easiest way to score. Um, so whenever you have bigger players, it kind of evens things out a little. Uh, doesn't make it as, as easy for big guys to just find themselves in the paint and put up a, an easy layup. And it's also more exciting to have the game end on a long jumper. You know, everyone's staring, oh, is it going to go in for those like one or two seconds uh, as it's heading toward the rim? And I, I feel like that's a really satisfying finish. But I would still prefer an alley-oop dunk over a made free throw. 
if that's my only complaint about the fourth quarter of the NBA All-Star game, the NBA did something right. Now, in terms of the game itself, I didn't like that there weren't a whole lot of substitutions. They basically had the same 10 guys, and Kyle Lowry wasn't a starter. He was on the court. He, of course, was impactful um, for his defensive effort, taking a charge of, uh, you know, taking that offensive foul on James Harden. But did kind of feel like Nick Nurse blew an opportunity when he had a lot of talent on the bench. He could have easily turned to a guy like Jimmy Butler, who's been having a phenomenal season in Miami. Uh, but he kept uh, Nick Nurse, or Nick Nurse kept uh, Kyle Lowry and uh, Pascal Siakam, another one, which I don't necessarily have a huge problem with, but two Raptors guys got to play down the stretch there. And when you think about it, he basically gave $300,000 to a different charity. Now, great on that charity getting the 400 k uh, but you know the other ones that are just there, like how did Team Giannis blow this? Like they they were this close to getting four hundred thousand dollars, and instead they only get a quarter of that. Hundred thousand dollars would certainly go a long way, but not quite as far as four hundred k. And you know, I, I'm glad that it, it wasn't just a total route the entire way. You know, one side gets five hundred k. I think the losing side was guaranteed either fifty or seventy five k, even if they wouldn't have won anything. Um, which obviously would not be uh, even as great as 100K. But it, it would be cool to see uh, maybe a, a little <laughs> a little more in the future, maybe less discrepancy. You know, have <laughs> that felt like a, a huge difference at the end. Uh, regardless, I was glad that the NBA uh, did give more of an incentive to try because you're actually trying to play for something. And charity, NBA cares, of course, that, that's huge to the league. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see um, that that was enough incentive to get the, the players to put on a show, even if it was only for 15 minutes out of the full two-and-a-half-hour game. So from there, the, the NBA All-Star game, it, if this is as good as it's going to be, I will be satisfied for now. On the flip side, there's one event that has been a staple of NBA All-Star Weekend for the past 35 years. And it's the event that should be the most exciting. But you know, even though it can still be the most exciting, it there are a lot of flaws with it. And that is the NBA Slam Dunk Contest. And th- this was something that totally stood out because you had... Aaron Gordon of the Orlando Magic, and Derek Jones Jr. of the Miami Heat. Uh, They also went up against Pac Nonnen of the Milwaukee Bucks, Dwight Howard of the Los Angeles Lakers, but after two dunks, uh, those latter two were eliminated. Aaron Gordon got two perfect scores. Jones had a perfect score and a 46, so 196. Then in the championship round, they both kept getting perfect scores. And Aaron Gordon had five straight 50s. So he pulls out this dunk over Taco Fall. Didn't even rehearse it. You have seven foot five Taco Fall, doesn't play for the Magic, plays for the Boston Celtics, and Aaron Gordon dunks over him. Now, yes, he did end up uh, you know, making contact with Fall on his shoulders, but it was still an... A super impressive feat that he was able to do that. Yet the judges weren't ready to stop the show. 
So when Jones only got a 48 on his sixth dunk, the idea was that Gordon would be docked a couple points and also get a 48. Yet the judges messed up, only gave Gordon a 47, and instead of continuing, Derek Jones Jr. was named the slam dunk champion. Now, Jones was also phenomenal, but it is absolutely fair to say that Aaron Gordon was robbed. How you can have five perfect scores in one dunk contest and still not win is just beyond me. That being said, I'm still not a fan of the fact that Gordon had five perfect dunks because perfect score clearly doesn't mean anything when that's the case. And I I think that's the root of the issue in the NBA slam dunk contest is the judges can't do what these guys do. They have no reason not to give some of these phenomenal dunks a 10 out of 10. Even if they're maybe not the flashiest thing we've ever seen. They're not this uh, never, never before seen dunk or just some insane acrobatic skills because we we've just been so saturated with some of these dunks these dunks that when they do them today they might not be flashy they might not be super exciting but 10 years ago this was a 50 we'd never seen it before 20 years ago however far back and it's at the point where as fans we start to become desensitized oh doing a windmill dunk that's not impressive anymore we've seen so many guys do this going but you know behind your back you know one-handed you know jumping over somebody it's, it's just not not anything that impresses us anymore and that's why when you see these dunks get 50s it doesn't it it, it just doesn't make sense for every dunk to be considered a perfect score and i understand why they're given perfect scores but we just end up in a situation where Gordon and Jones, oh, they can't do any better. They're just going back and forth. And now all of a sudden, one of them has to lose. And the guy who had five perfect scores versus the guy who had four perfect scores is a loser. So my, I think there are a lot of ways we can fix this. Um, and my ideal fix is let everyone dunk. Round one, all four guys go. They do their thing. And they're all ranked head-to-head. Four, three, two, one. And then you do it again. And maybe you do it one more time. And whoever has the best aggregate score, if someone has the best dunk in all three rounds, they're going to win. If someone has the best dunk in the one round and then the worst in another, who knows what they'll end up doing. And maybe we'll end up with more ties like this. But that just keeps going head-to-head. Don't just give every single dunk a 50. Make it so you have to say one is better than the other. Because 150 is not equivalent to another 50. And you're not going to be able to get these guys to only give a 7. You know, guys or girls judging. like They're not just going to give a 7 out of 10 for a wild dunk because maybe there will be something that's significantly better. Or, you know, whether that's this year or down the road. So, to me, that's all, all it has to be. Some kind of head-to-head. So, Ben had suggested a tournament format to me um, when I was talking to him about this this weekend, which I think could absolutely work. My only question is how do you seed these guys in terms of what the matchup is in the first round? And if that's the only issue you have, then I think that's something the NBA can come up with, whether it's just a random draw um, I, I, I was thinking initially maybe two East, two West, but you had three Eastern Conference players in this slam dunk contest. You don't want to keep a guy out or put a guy in that's less deserving just because of the team he plays for. But I, I think that 
the whole concept of putting these guys head to head is really the, the best way to avoid something like this from happening. Because Aaron Gordon had a lot of phenomenal dunks. And here's the thing. His, we see 550s. Oh, how does he not win? Well, maybe a couple of his 50s were worse than Derrick Jones's 50s. But Derrick Jones can't get more than a 50. So, to me, I think you just got to put these guys head to head and just let the judges decide from there. Let the fans vote. How about that? The fans certainly, well, they probably would have given Aaron Gordon the win. They definitely wouldn't have given Derrick Jones the win. So, the fans, I don't like the idea of the fans deciding the NBA All-Star starters because they, they had a, a lot of uh, mishaps with that, at least in terms of the way that their voting turned out, seeing guys like Alex Caruso and Taco Fall and injured Kyrie Irving and Stephen Curry way up at the top of the leaderboard. Now, players and media, we're never going to let them get in, but the fans might have cost some guys who the players and media thought deserved it because they decided to vote for the joke players. Or the guys that they're used to seeing every year, even though they are maybe, maybe not even able to play in the game. Don Contest, that's the perfect time. Saturday night should be for fans' enjoyment. With the skills challenge, the three-point contest, um, and of course the slam dunk contest. So, my hope is that the NBA changes something. Because we just see this every year, all these dunks that are impressive. 45, sure. You know, give it an 8 or a 9 out of 10. They're not all 10 out of 10. They're not perfect dunks. Because right now, perfection means nothing in the slam dunk contest. And I think getting rid of the perfect score will help us determine the proven actual winner every time. So from there, uh, let's, let's talk about just uh, looking forward to the second half of the NBA season. And... There are a lot of things that I'm interested in seeing how they play out. And I'm going to start with the Eastern Conference. And the, the thing that stands out to me, the Milwaukee Bucks, sitting in first place, 46-8. and eight. They are a near lock to finish with the best record in the Eastern Conference. Whether they hold on to that is not the big story to me right now because I just can't envision with the way they're playing to not be the number one seed it would take a huge collapse and one of these teams below them to just absolutely catch on fire and play just about as well as the Bucs have been doing the Bucs have been nearly flawless to this point the big question is just how many wins can they get Milwaukee's on pace to win 70 games now in order to go 73 and 9 they would only be able to lose one more time this season. 73-9, and nine, of course, would match the 2016 Golden State Warriors for most wins in a season. That just feels unrealistic. Of course, winning out to break that is definitely not going to happen. They're going to falter at some point. They'll probably lose twice, three, four, maybe five times. And if they lose five times, they're not going to get to 70 wins. So can they keep up this pace? Because eventually, the incentive to win these games is going to go away. Giannis is going to have some load management games. Chris Middleton might have some. Eric Bledsoe. Brooke Lopez. So how far can the Bucks go? Are they going to go all in just to get to 70 wins when 64 easily wins them the conference? You know, Maybe one of the teams below them can come close to 60, can get that point. But it'll take a big collapse for Milwaukee. It'll take 
something really horrible going on. And by really horrible, probably some significant injuries to some of their best players, which I hope doesn't happen because this Milwaukee Bucks team has been so fun to watch. They are a team that is in competition for one of the greatest ever. I don't think that they're going to finish with a better record than the 72 and 10 Chicago Bulls. So to me, I don't think that they're going to go down as number one. The Warriors didn't win the finals. So the box could definitely still be the best team since then. And anyone who is saying, I need to see more from Milwaukee, like I can't trust them right now. What's your reasoning for that? Because they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals last year. Milwaukee absolutely destroyed the Detroit Pistons in the first round. And yeah, they're the eight seed. That's it's what you expect from a dominant team. But the way they did it was just, they didn't even belong in the same league. And then in the second round, against the Boston Celtics, my Celtics, they got more or less blown out in game one at home. Paul Pierce was already declaring the series over. And what does Milwaukee do? They go out and win four in a row. Kyrie Irving certainly did his part to help Milwaukee's chances in that one. But after that first game, it was almost like the two teams just switched. Just total role reversal. And Milwaukee just dominated from there. And they were up 2-0 on the Toronto Raptors. And then Kawhi Leonard took over. And that Raptors team just came together and they proved that they were a championship team. Like they were just a little better than Milwaukee and they won four in a row. That was a collapse by the Bucks, but they were that close to making the NBA finals. And if the same thing happens in those NBA finals with Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry going down, Milwaukee wins the NBA championship last season. And Kawhi Leonard isn't in Toronto anymore. They have Pascal Siakam. They have Kyle Lowry as all-stars. But they don't have Kawhi Leonard. There's no one in Giannis Antetokounmpo's league in the Eastern Conference. Kawhi's in the West. LeBron's in the West. James Harden's in the West. Milwaukee is the best team in the Eastern Conference. And it'll take a lot for any team to stop them from reaching the NBA Finals. And that kind of brings me to storyline number two for the East, which really, to me, the big storylines is where we're going to see teams in the the standings. And that's what I'm interested in. I I don't necessarily care about all of the the little pettiness off the court, any of those things that might come up. I want to see where these teams stack up one through eight on both conferences at the end of the regular season. And when you look at the East, Number two and number three is hugely important because you want to avoid the Bucs as long as possible. Let someone else get a shot with them in the second round. See if they can wear them down. Maybe even pull off the big upset. Because if you're the two or the three, your second round matchup will be significantly better. And maybe you'll be even worn down yourself. But... I'd rather see my team in the Eastern Conference Finals going up against Milwaukee than in the Eastern Conference Semifinals and have our season cut short. And I'm sure that's what a lot of fans as a lot of teams are thinking. And if you can get that far, Toronto showed that they could knock them off. Maybe someone else can. So who's going to grab those two and three seeds? Right now, it's the Raptors and the Celtics. And the Raptors, what they have done this season has been phenomenal. It's been unbelievable. The The fact that this team loses Kawhi Leonard, who... You can make a case as the best player in basketball. And their record 
their place in the standings no worse than they were last year this time. They finish as a number two seed, and they're in great position to finish as a number two seed once again. They won 15 straight games before losing to Brooklyn the last game of the first half, but 15 straight. And Toronto's doing it. Yeah, they have Siakam and Lowry who are all-stars, but neither of those guys are in Kawhi's league. Guys like Fred Van Vliet, Terrence Davis. I never even heard of Terrence Davis before this season. He's been their leading scorer in multiple games. I think he scored 30 a couple times. The Raptors are just the definition of team basketball. They're deep. They're, they have guys that can come out. They just love playing together. They love playing for Nick Nurse. I thought it was crazy when the Raptors fired Dwayne Casey after being the number one seed because he couldn't beat LeBron James. Like, nobody else could in the East. And LeBron was probably going to the West after the season anyway. Yet, I don't know if this team accomplishes what they did last year, winning the finals, and what they're doing this year, being the two seed without a super-duper star with Dwayne Casey as coach instead of Nick Nurse. And I'm curious to see just how well the Raptors can continue moving forward with some of these other teams still breathing down their necks. The Celtics have been great this year compared to what I expected. I wasn't sold on them not having an elite big man. I thought, you know, we'll see how Kemba Walker comes in because while the team will be more fun, maybe the chemistry will be a lot better, he's not Kyrie Irving, and there will be a little bit of a drop-off. But I don't think there has been a drop-off at all. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, they've all in moments been insane, just so good together. And yeah, it's hasn't always been a great recipe with all four of those guys playing great on the same night. In fact, it rarely happens. Usually, you know, one of them goes for 30 and another one misses 10 shots. But the Celtics are a team that they had two all-stars of their own and Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum. Jalen Brown could be there again someday. Marcus Smart, one of the best defensive players in the league, certainly in the conversation for defensive player of the year. Daniel Tyson and his cancer. They've both exceeded expectations as big men. So, yeah, the Celtics are another team. I think right now the Celtics and Raptors were the two and three seed meet in the conference semifinals. Those two teams will play a hard-fought six or seven game series. And one of them could give Milwaukee a test. I don't think either of them knocks off the Bucks. I would expect that series to more likely end in a sweep than in a seven-game series. But... Down the stretch, those two teams are two that we're going to want to focus on and see if they can put things together and hold off the 76ers in the heat. So I'll start off with Miami. The Miami Heat, they signed Jimmy Butler in the offseason. After being, I think, the 10th team in the East last year, they missed the playoffs uh, pretty late in the season they were eliminated. They bring in Jimmy Butler. I'm like, okay, you know, Butler, he's a great player. He was solid with Sixers. He'll be an all-star still, but... Miami's not finishing any better than the seven seed, maybe the six. Miami has been so good this year. They've been right up there with Toronto, Boston, and Philadelphia team, who I'll get to in a minute. And the Heat added Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder at the trade deadline. They made a big splash. Those other teams, Toronto and Boston, did not do that, have not to this point. So... To me, Miami is another team that they're they're looking really great. They've had all this awesome production from unsung rookies and Tyler Hero and Kendrick Nunn. 
Duncan Robinson, another guy. I mean, I don't know if Nunn was a rookie. I think he came from the G League late last year. But these are guys who we haven't seen on this stage before. And they're balling out. They're playing hard. They're Jimmy Butler, this guy that we talk about him ruining teams, ruining the Bulls, ruining the Wolves, ruining the Sixers. And he has been seamlessly in, intertwined in Miami into this Heat team and just being this awesome leader. And I think that the Miami Heat, well, I don't think they're going to catch Milwaukee. I don't see them winning the East. They absolutely can make the conference finals. And I think that would be... I'm just totally beyond anything I ever could have expected from that team entering the season. So from there, we have the Sixers. And the Heat and the Sixers would play in the Eastern Conference quarterfinals. And before the season, um, on our NBA preview episode, uh, Ben, Brian, and I all said, Milwaukee 1, Philly 2. We kind of uh, had our, our disagreements in terms of whether it was a, a 1A, 1B situation or a 1 and then a clear number 2 for the Philadelphia 76ers. But we all said those two. We all said those two would meet in the Eastern Conference Finals. And we posed a question. You know, what team could prevent a Bucks 76ers Conference Finals? And Brian and Ben gave their answers. I know Brian said the Celtics. I think Ben said the Raptors. I said the 76ers. The, the team who could prevent a Bucks 76ers Eastern Conference Finals was the 76ers themselves. <laughs> and boy, do I feel like I nailed that take based on their performance in the first half of the season. This is a team that is so talented. Joel Embiid. Ben Simmons, both All-Stars. Tobias Harris has been an All-Star. Al Horford has been an All-Star. Josh Richardson is someone who the Sixers didn't feel like they had a huge drop-off when they lost. Jimmy Butler did a signing trade with Miami, couldn't retain him. Josh Richardson, still a great shooting guard. Great number two piece to throw in there. They have one of the best starting fives you can come up with. Yet, they have struggled to translate into the win column and play games together. And the chemistry has been piss poor. Al Horford wanted to be a number four. He wanted to be a power forward. And he comes here and he hates his role. He doesn't like it. The one guy who has been able to shut down Joel Embiid teams up with Joel Embiid. And the Sixers from there should have this amazing front court that nobody can stop. And yet here they are. Lined up against the Miami Heat in that 4-5 matchup. And I don't think they would win that series. I think the Heat, with the way they're playing, and the 76ers have been struggling. You know, Whether it's a chemistry issue, Coach Brett Brown, a little bit of both. Guys playing out of position, I don't know what it is. The Sixers have been a huge disappointment. And when Charles Barkley on NBA on TNT during a game against the Bucs said that the Sixers are the Cleveland Browns of the NBA... You know, that's that's bold. That's uh, Calling anybody the Cleveland Browns or something is one of the worst insults you can give. But uh, it's not that crazy of a hyperbole if you're just talking about this season. Because the Sixers had such high expectations. And yeah, maybe they weren't the finals favorite. But they were number four, five maybe. Obviously the two LA teams and you had uh, Milwaukee. But Philly was right there. And the fact that they are far from a guarantee to even win a playoff series, let alone make the conference finals, 
has been horribly, horribly disappointing. So I'm interested to see if Philly can improve in the standing. Can they catch or pass Miami, Boston, Toronto, and put themselves in the two seed, put themselves in the driver's seat to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, and then see what they do with Milwaukee. So the I guess the final team to talk about, the Indiana Pacers, Victor Oladipo is back. He's essentially their NBA trade deadline ap- acquisition, returning from injury in late January. Indiana, to me, is still kind of that odd team out. They're the ones on the outside. Last year, they were the fifth-best team in a four-team conference. This year, I, I think that they're it's fair to call East a six-team conference, or at least the Bucs and five others. Um, I, I, I don't know. Demonis Sabonis, great first half, 18 and 12. He's an all-star. He's one of the better big men in the league. They have some solid pieces there. They had Malcolm Brogdon come over from Milwaukee in the off season, but I, I don't know what to make of Indiana. I just, I can't see them supplanting any of the teams in front of them. And from there as a six seed, could they beat the Celtics in the first round? Well, last year they went toe to toe with them four straight games and lost four straight games. So I don't know. I think they're above Brooklyn. I think they're above Orlando, but Indiana to me is the odd man out. So it, maybe it'll be interesting to see if uh, once Oladipo gets back from his injury, you know, he's, he's playing regular minutes, he's rebuilding his chemistry with his teammates, if that Pacers team can improve and they can move up in the standings and all of a sudden become a threat, a team that we could see in the conference finals because right now I just don't see it. So looking ahead uh, and moving forward to the Western Conference, the, the, the team that stands out to me is the Los Angeles Clippers. They the big win is the offseason, signing Kawhi Leonard, trading for Paul George. The trade deadline, they pick up Marcus Morris. They just got Reggie Jackson for the Detroit Pistons after he was bought out from his contract. They're getting all these guys that the Lakers wanted. Yet, the Clippers find themselves five games behind the Lakers in the standings. And even though they're the three seed, they're closer to the seventh-seeded Dallas Mavericks than they are to the top-seeded Lakers. Where do the Clippers find themselves in the standings when the season ends. That's that's what I want to see. What do we see from the second half Clippers? Injuries have kept Paul George out of the lineup. Load management, of course, is always going to be a thing with Kawhi Leonard these days. They haven't had their best lineup on the floor very often. Are they going to have that in the second half? Are they going to put things together, go on this huge run, and all of a sudden find themselves in the two spot, maybe even in the one spot? Going into the season, I thought the Clippers would be the number two seed in the West, even though that they, I believe they were the most talented team. I thought the Denver Nuggets were the kind of team that would put together a phenomenal regular season, and they would end up with the one seed. And right now, the Nuggets are the two. They're ahead of the Clippers. Can the Clippers at least pass Denver, even if they can't catch the Lakers? And from there, I guess we'll see what they can do in the postseason, because when you look at the their record, they are pretty dominant at home, twenty two and five, but they're fifteen and thirteen on the road. So to me, getting that two seed is huge for this team. Just having that home court advantage, maybe that's not even a thing. You know, when when the second half plays out and they have their guys, they're they're winning games on the road. We're not talking about that, but that's something that stands out. And. The Denver Nuggets can win at home. You know they have that elevation factor. They're twenty-one and seven. Denver and LA play on a neutral court advantage series. I'm gonna take the Nuggets. 
or sorry, I'm going to take the Clippers. <laughs> even if, even if the Nuggets have home court advantage, I'm still going to take the Clippers. But is that a factor? I don't know. And you know, getting getting the ones seed could be huge for them. But I don't know if that matters too much. It's not as I guess in the case of the the Eastern Conference, it's the one seeded Bucks. You don't want that four five. But in the West, after them, you have Utah, Houston, Oklahoma City, Dallas. So Utah, Houston, they as a four or five, those are two really good teams. I could see either one of them advancing to the Western Conference Finals. Now, as a four or the five, it's going to be harder having to go up against the Lakers. I think they'd have a better chance against Denver if one of them finds themselves as a three seed. And who knows, if Clippers fall to a four and all of a sudden we have a Lakers-Clippers Western Conference semifinals. So having Dallas-Oklahoma City in the second round and then potentially, or I guess in the first round, potentially in the second round, I I think that just sets them up better if they're in that 2-3 range, ideally in the two spot. Getting that home court advantage in the second round. So where the Clippers end up in the standings, that's that's a big thing for me. And then the final storyline I'm interested in. The Grizzlies' pursuit of the eight seed. Can Zion Williamson catch John Morant? I'm not talking about rookie of the year. I'm talking about for that final playoff spot. And yeah, the Pelicans have to jump the Blazers and the Spurs. The Pelicans have been so great with Zion Williamson. Or at least Zion's been great. Pelicans have lost some games where he's played really well. But that team has so much talent. And with a healthy Zion, can, can Memphis continue to outpace them? They added Justin Winslow, subtracted Jay Crowder. Yeah, they subtracted Andre Iguodala, but he wasn't on the team to play uh, to begin with. So that, that'll be an interesting storyline is how who gets that final spot, even if that team doesn't win a playoff game. Just getting in the postseason is huge. Memphis hasn't been there in a few years. They, they were a perennial playoff contender, never really got anywhere, made one Western Conference Finals appearance. As an eight seed, they upset the Spurs only to lose in the, the conference semis. Making the playoffs to be huge for that team, for that city, you know, for John Morant moving forward, you know, some of those other young talent like Dylan Brooks, Jaron Jackson Jr. So... Can Memphis grab that eight spot? Or a team like Portland Trailblazers, who was in the Western Conference Finals last year, can they get back? That's a great question. Because that team has been horrible compared to where they were last year. It's been a disaster for them. Not necessarily at the level of Philly in terms of the huge expectations. I'm sure a lot of people thought that Portland would have a a, uh, difficult path to getting to the Western Conference Finals again. But not even making the playoffs. Damian Lillard, T.J. McCollum, you know, they they had to sign Carmelo Anthony out of necessity. That's how bad things were getting with that team in terms of injuries. And maybe when those guys get healthy, they're going to put things together. But Damian Lillard's hurt right now. So, And then the Spurs, of course, them making the playoffs. They've made it a near record straight seasons. And they want to keep that streak alive. Pop wants to keep that streak alive. But... San Antonio is is fading, and I think this will be the first postseason without that team in the playoff field. I thought last year would be. Going into the season, I said this year would be, and it, it seems right. So then from there, New Orleans. And I, I've, I've been on the record that I'm, I'm a fan of the Pelicans. I, I love that team and just some of the, the play that has come from Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart uh, since coming over in the Anthony Davis trade. Zion Williamson has been 
a superstar. Anyone who was questioning him for missing those games, yeah, what what kind of guy he was, and you know, he might be a boss. He's showing that when he's healthy, he can be one of the best players in this league going forward. Not this season, not next season, but when he's been in the league for a few years, we could absolutely be talking about him at the top of the game. Perennial All-Star every year. Perennial All-Star starter. Perennial MVP. Now, maybe I'm getting too far ahead of myself, but you know, can he will this Pelicans team to the postseason? Because that would be huge for New Orleans after moving on from Anthony Davis, their, their franchise icon, a guy who they, they just couldn't assemble the right pieces around. You know, they, they made the playoffs twice in seven years. They made they won one playoff series. You know, can they get back to the playoffs right away without them and set themselves on the right path for the future? Sacramento, Phoenix, there are others in there. I don't know. I'm I'm not really sold on either of them as playoff contenders right now, but that would be huge for both of those teams. Kings haven't made the playoffs in 2006. Suns since, I think, 2010. So can those teams find themselves back in the playoff picture? And, you know, the, I think the, the postseason race in the West will be exciting for those final few spots. The first seven look locked up, but that... that you know, that, that one eight seed, uh, who's going to, to win that out? That, I think that's a big storyline to me. So, finally, the MVP race. Giannis versus LeBron, the two all-star guys. You know, maybe you'll throw in James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, uh, which I, I don't, I think it'll take a huge second half from him. But, Giannis, LeBron. Which one of them? We, we've been talking. We've, we've started to have this debate around the league. Is, is Giannis becoming... Is he already the best player in the league? Has he passed LeBron? Well, the way LeBron James has been playing, he's been insanely impressive for his 17th year. The fact that he's in this conversation. I did not expect the Lakers to be this good. I thought injuries that suffer, uh, both LeBron and Davis suffered last year would catch up to them this season that those are two guys that they just couldn't stay healthy. Davis had a track record of it. LeBron, 17th season. Eventually, a guy who is as close to a superhuman as anyone would get worn down, right? Well, not yet. So, you know, and I think if uh, one of those teams, the Bucks or the Lakers, falls off that one seed line, it's a big advantage to the other guy. So, MVP race. Who who will find themselves at you know, the NBA award night winning that most valuable player trophy? Will Giannis win it for the second year in a row? Will LeBron win it for the first time in a few years? You know, get get that MVP again. Now, both of those guys, they would much rather win the Larry O'Brien trophy, but MVP is still in consideration. So, very excited to see how things Go the rest of the way in the second half as we gear up, get ready for the playoffs in the NBA. All right, so let's wrap things up and uh, conclude today's episode with the top five. And this is a segment that I haven't done a whole lot of in 2020, but uh, certainly one of my favorites that we do, uh, something that's regularly every single episode. And at times it can maybe be a lot, which is why we tried to take a break from it. But I do think uh, it would be a lot of value in bringing it back. So 
whether it is every episode going forward, most episodes, whatever. Uh, we do want to continue to bring you great lists and add some entertainment and some discussion about things that maybe aren't about sports. Although I will say that this one is sports related uh, because uh, the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice is this weekend. So in honor of the U.S.'s huge upset victory over a Soviet Union at Lake Placid, an event that I consider the greatest sport of the greatest sporting event of all time, greatest moment. Uh, I'm gonna count down the greatest sports calls that company unbelievable moments in today's top five. Not two, not three, not four. Top five, top five, top five. So let's start out with number five. Havlicek stole the ball. That was Johnny Most 1965 Eastern Division Finals. Uh, as a Celtics fan, I, I obviously love this call. Just yeah, he's displaying his homerism. Maybe I'm displaying mine and in uh, putting this at number five, but just uh, the excitement that comes from most uh, announcing this. You know, as a, you see, hear about the fans uh, coming out onto the court. Uh, you know, this is from the early days in the NBA, just uh, all around great moment and a, a great call to really encapsulate it, and you know, probably make a lot of young people, a lot of a lot of uh, really anyone with uh, the how young the league was, uh, become big fans of basketball. So number four. Comes loose and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rodgers along the sideline. Another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They tried to do a couple of. The ball is still loose as they get it to Rodgers. They give it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going to go the Bears. The Bears have won. The Bears have won. The band is on the field. That's Joe Starkey, the call of the 1982 Cal Stanford. They call it the play, and it's just the game. It's one of those big college football rivalries. Uh, just an unbelievable play. You know, everyone loves an exciting hook and ladders. Uh, one of those last second prayers. And Cal's were answered that day. Uh, just an unbelievable call. You know, just imagining the band being on the field and just trying to react to this as the, the player uh, runs into the end zone. A very memorable play and a very memorable call that makes that such a great moment. Number three. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game. Now, this is a moment that has two great calls, uh, two great broadcasters in baseball history. Uh, Vince Scully, the other one, the Dodgers radio guy, uh, TV guy as well. Of course, Jack Buck made this one, 1988 World Series. I don't believe what I just saw. Uh, hearing the story of the Kirk Gibson home run, just something that I, I always thought was one of the, the greatest stories, one of the greatest sports moments ever. Uh, baseball, it's just the the 
the poetry that really comes from this game, just uh, those kind of moments, a walk-off home run, which I I believe is uh, the most exciting play in, in all of sports, especially in the World Series, and set up the Dodgers to to win this title, and they haven't won since. So uh, Kurt Gibson definitely played a huge role for L.A. getting that title with that huge home run, and Jack Buck, can't blame him. <laughs> the, Two bad legs, and he's out there hitting a home run. I wouldn't believe it. I just saw it either. So now number two. Back to throw. There's a left side. I can't be, I believe. The Giants won the pennant. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the very back of the left field stand. The Giants won the pennant, and they're going crazy. They're going crazy. And we talk about early calls. Russ Hodges, 1951. So I don't know if you really call it the National League Championship Series, but it was for the pennant. As you know, the Giants won the pennant. Game three, down four to two. And Bobby Thompson, just this improbable home run. The shot heard around the world. Uh, I, I love this call. Knowing it's 1951, like I feel like every time I hear some of these older calls, even from like the 60s, 70s, like, they don't have that kind of excitement. They're very monotone. And uh, to have this from 1951, I think it just makes it special to me. First ever nationally televised baseball game, and fans were uh, greeted to a great one, um, not just on the field, but also in the broadcast booth, Ross Hodges. The Giants win the pennant, number two. And then finally, number one, the reason why we're doing this countdown. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to show. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. Need I say more? I mean, this is something that is often quoted parodied uh, do you believe in miracles like it's just truly a miracle the miracle on ice uh, greatest sports moment ever and al michaels his countdown the final call uh it's just something that everyone is always going to associate with that moment and to me uh, just given how big it was and a simple question simple answer yes al michaels deserving of the number one spot so, 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice coming up this weekend. If you haven't seen the movie Miracle, highly recommend it. One of the the better sports movies out there really does a good job of setting the tone of what the climate was um, politically with the Cold War going on in 1980. You know, talk about some of the you know what went into forming that team, what Herb Brooks did. Uh, just a, a really phenomenal movie. And I'm I'm probably going to make an effort to watch that soon. I, I watched it recently, just a few months ago. So we'll see. But uh, definitely one of the, the most fun movies. And his, his speech, uh, of course, is something that even if you haven't seen the movie, there's a good chance you've seen that one. So, all right. That will wrap things up. First ever solo episode of He's Done It. You know, let me know what you think. You you agree disagree with my thoughts? You know, come come back to me. You know, these are just my thoughts from a sports junkie, regardless of the sport I play. So um, I hope you enjoyed it, and I believe the next time we'll be talking, I'll have at least one of Brian or Ben with me. 
50th episode. We'll see if we do anything special for it. So, all right. For myself, I'm Corey Navani. Thanks, everyone. Oh, 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 oh,